This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. You are listening to The Feed. Thank you for that. I'm Ann Romer on the show, the nation's music station coming to the big screen, managing expectations in youth sports and the increasing struggle to make ends meet. But first, a damning report by Ontario's ombudsman was released last week detailing the collapse of the long-term care inspection system during the deadly first weeks of the COVID pandemic and the tragic fallout that ensued. There were no inspections of long-term care homes in this province for seven weeks in the spring of 2020 and no inspection reports issued for two months, this according to the ombudsman's report entitled Lessons for the Long Term. Joining us with reaction is Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. She has long been a vocal and passionate advocate for better long-term care. She's also the founder of Canadians for LTC and is an associate teaching professor, faculty of social sciences and humanities at Ontario Tech University. Welcome to the feed, Vivian. Thank you so much for giving us your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So your reaction to the Ombudsman's report, too little, too late, or can something positive actually come from it? I think it's both, right? So there's definite, um, you know, the the reaction I was seeing certainly online and from the families that reached out to me was, well, we told you so. Mm-hmm. We were shouting from the rooftops that entire time in real time. I mean, I was alongside those families tweeting, you know, talking to the media, telling people that this was happening as well. We knew this was happening and it was infuriating um, you know, to kind of relive it and see it all in black and white. But at the same time, it's nice to have that confirmation that what we were saying and the warnings we were putting out were indeed true and have now been validated by the ombudsman. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword in that wow. in that sense. And, the, and And I have to ask you to let us know what you were seeing. For those who either may have forgotten or just didn't know what was what was going on what were families seeing what were you seeing three and a half years ago it was horrifying i mean you know to time warp back this was the first you know three months of the pandemic where um everything was completely shut down families would hear about what was happening at some of these facilities and the families that were able to go on the premises of some of these facilities they weren't allowed in but some of the facilities had you know first floor windows so those families were going and literally standing outside of the windows and they could see their loved ones inside emaciated not being fed sitting in their own uh, you know soiled incontinence pads desperately reaching out for food for help yelling like it was it was a nightmare it was a living nightmare for these families and i heard from families that had loved ones for example in orchard villa where they were seen through the windows and they were telling me what was happening we were telling the media and and the reports were out there but they they wouldn't the families weren't allowed in and what we were being told is that you know the, the inspectors were phoning it in they weren't going in because you know it wasn't safe for them to do so because at that point it was so early on that all of the um you know ppe well the vast majority of the existing uh personal protective equipment was being sent to hospitals ironically while it was the long-term care homes that were left out of it and they were the ones suffering in these outbreaks and, and that was probably one of the most damning things is that we needed the PPE and the supports to really be focused in long-term care where the where the outbreaks were, but yet they were diverted to acute care. And that also tells you the importance of being, you know, more properly factored into the Canada Health Act like hospitals were, which was why they were protected and why long-term care was left on their own 
to, to effectively suffer the way they did. And suffer they did. Close to 2,000 COVID-related deaths in long-term care during the first wave, which was about mid-January 2022, about uh, the early August of 2020 as well. It's it's so upsetting to have heard it then and to hear it now. So let me ask yeah. you this. The report deals primarily with the inspection issue or lack thereof yeah. in the early days. Should other glaring issues that contributed to the collapse of the already shaky LTC system have been examined as well in this report? Absolutely. I was, I'll was. i be honest, and I've said this in other media too, I was, I was upset when I saw Mr. Dubay, the ombudsman, um, being very hesitant to speculate on whether for, you know, profit, a status had an impact in what he was seeing. And, you know, he said, well, we didn't, we weren't tasked with looking at that as, let's say, a variable of interest. But, I mean, give me a break. And not for nothing, those were the homes that he included in his report. Those were the predominant military-occupied homes. Those were the homes where the majority of residents died. We know this. The evidence is clear. So the fact that that wasn't included as a variable of interest to me, it's very partisan and very clearly shows that this government, and it's been very clear from their actions, are not interested in really discussing what needs to be discussed. The, the, the issue of ownership and the fact that the for-profit model, and this, was a, this is a hill I will die on, is a cancer on this sector, and it will consistently continue to lead in degraded care. We have the evidence internationally and domestic, and nothing will change until you deal with the for-profit model, uh, meaning from this moment forward, what everyone should be doing is stamping out any for-profit developments from here on out and only allowing non-profit and public ownership of long-term care because we have clear evidence those were the homes that did the best, that protected their residents, and it was the for-profit homes that consistently failed, and those are where the majority of residents died. Can I ask why it took over three years to finally get this report from the Ontario Ombudsman? Yeah, yeah. well, because part of it was because, you know, it looked like the ombudsman was being stonewalled. Mm -hmm. I put out a pretty long tweet thread about this and and put in excerpts, and he admitted that he was waiting upwards of a year for documents that he had been requesting. So they weren't weren't getting the data to him, and when they were, it was largely retracted or redacted, and, you know, they couldn't make sense of it, so then they had to go back and, and get more, you know, apply to get more of the information. So there was, it looked like there was some stonewalling. I mean, that's what it appeared when you read the write-up of the uh, report. Uh, and, and we saw that in all the reports, keep in mind. So this is not the first report. We had the military report. That was the first big bombshell report that had everyone talking. And then we had the patient ombudsman report that came out in October 2020. Then we had the Auditor General's report in 2021. Then we had the Long-Term Care Commissioner's report in 2021. And now this is the most recent fifth massive report. And all of these reports are so overwhelmingly damning that you would think there would be criminal charges and imprisonment for what has happened here, and yet nothing. We are sitting here talking about more of the neglect and the evidence of how bad it was, and yet not one home has been charged, not one license has been revoked. And where's the accountability in that? So this is why when I sit here and and I saw the new, we have a new minister, Stancho, talk about how they're taking this seriously and they're going to implement all of these measures. Well, what's it going to do? Because you know what? These measures were already in place. The Ombudsman's report pointed out how since 2017, they had the authority, the long-term care legislation, that people could go after repeat bad actors, the homes that kept breaking the law 
and effectively showing that they were neglecting residents, you could have gone after them for anywhere between two hundred to five hundred thousand dollars in fines and the potential of imprisonment. Yet none of that was levied and has still never been levied. And we sit here and we ask ourselves, why? So I find it very hard to believe that this government is suddenly going to start operating differently when they've had five reports now, which very clearly articulate broad sweeping governmental failure and the actual failure of these for-profit private providers to do what they needed to do to keep these people safe. And yet not one charge, not one, you know, imprisonment, not one revocation of a license. So what's going to change now, right? What's going to change now? They had the power all along to go after these bad actors and they didn't. And it's my understanding 76 recommendations have been made in this report and that the ministry is complying with these. And so what are we looking at in terms of implementation of these recommendations, which includes, by the way, greater whistleblower protection? Sure. And we've been saying this, you know, from the start of COVID, I was talking about greater whistleblower protections because keep in mind the reason why I was so busy, trust me, I would have much preferred to not be doing all the press I was doing and not be, you know, public figure, which the very, a lot of bad stuff can come from that. I'll tell you, it's not fun being public. Um, But I had to because a lot of the whistleblowers, the families uh, were often fearful of speaking for because the loved ones were in a captive audience, effectively in prison-like environments. They were afraid that if they spoke up, something would happen. And conversely, the staff were threatened, and we knew this was happening, would be told that if you spoke out, you're in trouble. You'll be fired. That's it. You're out. So there was clear, there were no whistleblower protections that were actually being enforced, and staff were scared to speak up. So I would have staff whistleblow to me, you know, through through reporting to me directly, but I had to then be the second, you know, the, the mouthpiece because I understood the fear and the clear consequences for them that would happen if they spoke up. And we did see that. I had many staffers tell me that they were fired for speaking up. You know, I have to ask you, the baby boomer generation, which is now quite uh, senior, if you will, they are sort of the next in line to move into long-term yeah. care. And they're 9 million strong. What does the future look like for long-term care for the yeah. this next generation who will be requiring this kind of care? Yeah. I'm going to be honest. I am very fearful. For, and, you know, that's, that's my parents I'm thinking about too here. Yeah. And, and I, I am terrified for what's going to happen because we had a moment in time where, where nothing, we have experienced nothing like we have during COVID, the worst mass casualty in our collective long-term care history. This was the time to do something. And the fact that, you know, we had been fighting for national standards because we knew that we weren't getting anywhere with certain premiers and we couldn't even get anywhere with our with the federal government, which was really frustrating. So w- w- what we have seen is that they have protected this model of for-profit and they're just replicating the existing status quo. A- and what we're going to see is much of the same going forward, with the exception you might you might hire some more inspectors. But again, if you refuse to actually go after these bad actors and you just write written reports of non-compliance, which is what the modus operandi is now, then nothing is going to change. And we are just literally reproducing the dysfunctional status quo that is already in place. Because for me, and I I vehemently believe that until you address the ownership, the for-profit element in the room, you can put all the safeguards in the place, but at the end of the day, these for-profit, big-pocketed people have the ability to capture this system. And and this is a concept I've talked about and I talked about with the long-term care commissioners, this notion of regulatory capture, where they have effectively lobbied so successfully 
often in large part by donating to a lot of people who end up becoming in power or are in power and want to keep that power in the donations, for example. And we see lots of connections with people who have left governments and then worked in for-profit long-term care, either in lobbying or sitting on boards like Mike Harris, key example, and he was one of the you know biggest people that promoted and propagated the for-profit system in Ontario. So they're always going to find a way to cut corners and to, and to lobby for, for lesser inspections, which they have, by the way. They are the ones that have been lobbying successfully to get rid of things like the yearly unannounced inspections, the resident quality inspections, and for reduced fines. So until if you have that insidious element in power and, you know, dominating the sector, you can hire a million inspector, inspect, inspectors, but what's really going to change, right? And that has been my consistent fear. And until governments do the real work of changing this sector, fundamentally, from an ownership perspective, I have a hard time believing that our parents and our grandparents and next generation is going to be cared for at all better. Vivian Stamatopoulos, why do you care so much? Oh, I, I get emotional when I talk about it. I had a grandmother that passed away in uh, one of these you know, facilities, um, and, I, and I know how... I know what the, how these places operate, and I just, she passed before COVID, two weeks before, actually, and, and, I, and that's what made me start advocating, because I just remembered, oh my God, if she was alive and I was kept away from her, I, there, there's no way. My heart, I, I could not have survived it. So I knew what these families were feeling and how hard it was to be separated from the people you love the most. It was just, it still makes me emotional when I think about it, because it was just so inherently wrong and unethical, and and. We have more evidence now showing that if you let them in, they could have helped. They would have been an added set of eyes and safeguards to protect their loved ones and the workers who really also needed advocates in their corner, too. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, thank you so much. Thank you. There's a new survey from Modus Research showing an alarming number of Canadians having difficulty keeping up with the cost of living. Glenn Perkins now with that story. A new study reveals what some of us already know. It's a struggle to keep afloat financially. Many people are living paycheck to paycheck. Charlie Graves, president of Modus Research, paints a picture of the survey's overall findings, and it's not pretty. We ran this survey uh, towards the end of the summer, and it's quite concerning what we're seeing in these results. We saw this earlier, or in late 2022, but the, a lot of these results have uh, actually gotten a little worse. Canadians are really feeling the impact of the cost of living, like in ways that I've never recalled after 30 years' experience doing uh, public opinion research, seeing this level of concern, it, especially when you look across uh, different income groups, that even in higher income groups, there's a lot of people in there still feeling the pinch. Now, they're not going to be as hard done by as people in lower income groups, of course, but uh, they are definitely feeling the pinch, which is a little unusual and potentially concerning. But we're also seeing this huge concerns over the cost of housing and the amount that people are paying, whether they're renters or homeowners with a mortgage uh, for cost of housing here is huge. And so the gist of the, the findings from the survey are that there are some big red flags out there. Um, 
you know, the Canadian public on the whole is, you know, really feeling squeezed right now. And they're not really seeing a light at the end of the tunnel here. And it's not just, uh, say, interest rates per se or inflation. They're just, I think, debt loads and things like that are feeding into this. And certainly the amount of people are leveraged in home ownership and the cost of rent and all these sorts of things are really, really putting people under the gun. It's alarming that you're telling me that the situation has worsened since you conducted the survey. How has it got worse? So in September, we we have some tracking indicators looking at the difference between September 2022 and August 2023, so roughly a year. Over that one-year period, we asked people to what extent, if at all, has the increase in the cost of living over the past year had a negative impact on your household's financial well-being. And back in September 2022, the number of people who said that it had a strong negative impact on their uh, household's financial well-being was just over a quarter at 27%. Today, that's over a third at 35%. Now, that's just the top group. If we include people who say it's having a moderately negative impact, we're pushing 90% of Canadians saying that they're experiencing a negative impact. But what's moved is is that group that uh, is saying they're feeling a strong negative impact. And that's a pretty, just over a year, that's a pretty significant movement, especially on a financial or economic type indicator. For those who did indicate the strong negative impact, did they go into detail on how they're managing that? We didn't uh, explore that, no. That was uh, that's something we could do in a future exercise, but here we, we didn't ask specifically about how they're managing it. We have asked that in the past. We did some cost of living work, I think also back in the fall of 2022, where we did ask people um, where they might have been cutting costs or expenses. People are talking at large numbers of Canadians then uh, were talking about cutting back on very elemental expenses, including very basic things like food. And um, and so, you know, when you see a significant number of Canadians saying, you know, we're cutting back on food and that's the impact of this negative impact. So we have we have asked that like in the past where we asked them about how they're how they're dealing with the various expenses, giving them a, a basically a long list of things and expenses and say, you know, have you been cutting here or there? And, you know, it's, yeah, that's essentially where they're managing it is cutting expenses. And in some places, uh, significant numbers, we're not talking about small minorities, like north of a quarter or a third of Canadians are saying, and this includes both, by the way, both renters and homeowners, uh, saying they, um, they're cutting back on things like food. So yeah, the, the way they're managing it is essentially how you would manage your finances. If you if things cost go up, you're gonna have to cut somewhere. And so um, that's what they're doing essentially. And we, we didn't measure that in this particular survey, but again, we measured that back in the fall of 2022 and it's, it's quite significant. I mean, so in the fall of 2022 on food alone, renters over a quarter, homeowners upwards of one in six were saying they they were cutting back on food a great deal not just somewhat a great deal and uh, same with clothing personal care savings they're cutting back on so you know if you extrapolate those numbers the population what you're seeing is not just a a large social impact but also a broad economic impact happening there uh, when people are having to manage things that way Uh, obviously less uh, spending but also lack of savings uh, and so forth so we're, we're painting a picture here essentially from this survey and the previous work that we did that there's a growing amount of economic insecurity and anxiety out there amongst the canadian population which is very concerning
Financial health goes hand in hand with physical health. How about their well-being? What was the effect on their health? That's a really good question, Glenn. We didn't ask that. That's something to explore in the future because I agree with you that there is a lot of data out there to suggest that financial well-being impacts both mental and physical well-being. We didn't explore that in this particular survey or we haven't actually explored it in the past, but we would certainly be interested in doing that in the future because that's a really important issue. But no, we don't have any data on that and I can't speak to that at this point. For those respondents who are finding it tough to keep up financially, was it one demographic or is it across the board? No, this is a thing in our current release that's, you know, when we saw the data that we found quite alarming is, is that it's going across virtually every demographic group, whether it's by income, education, region, age, whatever it may be. It varies across those demographic groupings, but it's very broad in terms of feeling this pinch or this real impact of the cost of living increases. These are people with income ranging from 40000 to $150,000? So, yeah, you would have, so we, you know, the low-income group, we categorize this under $40,000 of household income, not individual, but household income. The um, high end of that is $150,000 or more of household income. So when we get into those higher groups, whether it's it's from 100000 to 150 or 150 plus, we're seeing substantial numbers in there saying, I mean, they're not, not like they are in lower income groups, but substantial numbers in there are saying, you know, they can't keep up with this. This is fairly broad based. I mean, this isn't just being felt amongst the most vulnerable people. And it's being felt widely across Canadian population. Charlie, were the contributing factors the same? Cost of living, lack of affordable housing and inflation? Yeah, that that would be those were the key factors and we have measured those and those are definitely correlate very strongly with the impact of the cost of the cost of living is, you know, and especially housing and there's huge concerns about housing affordability in the country. I mean, I don't think that's news, but there are very, very large concerns there. There's concerns with inflation, interest rates and the general financial or economic well being of the, the Canadian economy. How do they feel about their future? It's not, it's not very rosy, to be honest with you. I mean, when we've asked people, and I've been tracking this for decades, actually, you know, we ask people about their household's financial well-being and how do they see that transpiring in the future. Generally, the future picture will always look quite a bit more rosy than the present one, especially if we're in difficult economic times. But when we ask people in this particular survey, we're asking them to project out. So what do they expect to happen with the cost of housing, uh, whether it be home ownership or uh, rents, they expect it to worsen. They don't expect it to get better. So there's there's a pretty gloomy picture underlying all of this that they don't see a light at the end of the tunnel here. That I mean, some people do, but broadly speaking, the Canadian population doesn't think this situation is going to improve anytime soon. Charlie Graves with Modus Research. Thank you for joining us on the feed today. I'm uh, most happy to do so, Glenn. Coming up next on the feed, Vaughn's mayor is planning for fall. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Back to life, back to reality, back 
And back to work, back to school, back to a routine, things we all are facing this time of the year. Vaughn Mayor Stephen Del Duca joins us now with his city's back-to-life plan for the month of September. Welcome, Mayor Del Duca. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. It's great to be back with you, Anne. Thanks so much. So it's back to school, and we're talking about safety, and, and it would be the students, the teachers, but pedestrians of all ages. So some great tips are on your city's website. What are they? Well, first of all, let me say with, with respect to back to school and pedestrian safety, um, you know, most mornings, not every morning, but most mornings, I'm I'm the one who drops our daughters off at their school, a high school and an elementary school in Woodbridge. And I, so you see, especially, you know, the last number of days as kids are going back, it's a bit of a, a bit of a wake up call, certainly for the moms and the dads and the families that are dropping off their kids, the kids themselves, but also motorists and other road users that we have across our city. We do a really good job, I think, as a city, is communicating out the message of be aware, be safe, and try to make sure that uh, our most vulnerable road users aren't put at an, an, an any unnecessary risk. And the city of Vaughan takes this very, very seriously. We have a whole series of measures uh, from picking up signs that you can you can put up on your lawn, which I see all over Vaughan. Uh, it's the hashtag slow down Vaughan, which strongly urges uh, road users to be able to slow down so we can have that livable community. Uh, some of the other tips that we talk about a lot, making sure that you're giving yourself enough time to get to your destination so you're not racing there. Certainly reduce speeds and be more vigilant and more careful in school zones. Uh, drive to the road conditions. You know, today in Vaughan, it's, you know, generally speaking, this time of year, the weather starts to shift a little bit. You want to be careful with that uh, and remain extra vigilant, as I mentioned a second ago, but particularly around stopped school buses. Uh, our youngest in this community sometimes are crossing. I know most of our, if not all of our motorists understand when the school bus's lights are flashing and the stop sign is out, it's an absolute imperative that they come to a stop and give people the space that they need on the road. So these are just some of the measures that we brought forward as a city and the messages that we're pushing out to make sure everybody remains safe. You know, it's interesting. I, I realize all of these tips are so important and they are absorbed by those who are transporting their kids to and from school, including bus drivers themselves. Uh, but it's, yeah. it's essential. You will never get that moment back. If something were to happen that you could have been prevented, you will never get that moment back. And it, and it could be just absolutely life-altering, if not life-ending. Yeah, it's 100% true. Let's move on to something that I found sort of comforting in a sense. It was the recognition and the remembrance of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II this past Friday, September the 8th. You dedicated a fountain to her and to her memory. I, I just thought that was really, really special. It was a really, um, a really nice event at the city, a very poignant event. Uh, I was delighted to have the uh, British Consul General to Toronto, Fuzia Yunus, who was here with us. She spoke I would say passionately, very eloquently, about the contribution that Queen Elizabeth II made, uh, as the, certainly as the Queen of Canada. Um, and, and, you know, you think about 70 years mm. serving as the Queen, that incredible sense of duty, that obligation to service, including some during some very difficult times, uh, but, you know, always doing it with class and with a certain sense of the nobility of service, not just the nobility of being born into a royal family, but actually finding that nobility in the service that she put forward. So uh, it was a great um, a great move, I'll say, by the last term of council to support this measure. And I was really very touched as mayor now to preside over the actual uh, unveiling of the plaque to commemorate 
Queen Elizabeth II's 70 years of service to us, to us. And where is the fountain? Where is the plaque? And and will people be moved by it, do you think? Yeah, so the plaque um, <clears throat> adorns the, the fountain that we have in the courtyard right outside of the front doors of City Hall. Uh, it's in a large public space for, for your listeners who have been to Vaughan City Hall. It's impossible to miss. Uh, it's a beautiful fountain. It's been there since City Hall uh, opened, to my recollection. And the plaque sits right at the front edge of that and it's a beautiful message in there again talking about the service and and, and everything else that she provided to us as uh, as the people of Vaughan but also the people of Canada and many of your listeners will know and Queen Elizabeth II had a very uh, a very strong sense of affection for Canada many many visits to this country uh, many visits that are uh, easy for me to recall as someone who's lived here my whole life and who has a mother who was actually born in Scotland and uh, uh, certainly a very uh, strong connection that many of our residents feel to the Queen and to their roots in the United Kingdom. And, you know, in spite of a Leger poll that came out earlier this week that talks about the majority of those asked want to cut ties or thinking about cutting ties with the monarchy, she was an outstanding monarch and she stood alone in so many ways in the eyes of so many. Absolutely. And I think, you know, regardless of how an individual might feel about the concept of a monarchy, I, I think it would be almost impossible to find a resident of Vaughan who would ever have had a bad word to say about Queen Elizabeth II in that example that she set because of the nobility of her public service, the time that she spent reigning seven decades, oh. uh, seven decades, which is just an extraordinary thing to consider. So very happy that we were able to make this happen. And it is now there. And her honor, her memory, I should say, will be will be continually honored uh, going forward because of the plaque that uh, that shows that our fountain in, at, at City Hall that we are we are grateful to her for the service that she provided to us. And as we continue to talk about back to life and back to reality and back to work, uh, you are asking Vaughan residents to consider being a part of council meetings starting this month. Why that? Why do you want to hear from residents in that way? Well, this is a really, it's a really important time in the evolution of our city. We are currently going through, for example, an update to our, what's known as our official plan. It's the guiding document regarding how our city will grow, where we will see that growth, what it will look like. I know that uh, we have an official plan a subcommittee that's uh, chaired and, and vice chaired by Deputy Mayor Linda Jackson and Ward 3 Councillor Rosanna Francesca. They've been working hard along with city staff and the consultants we've retained to be out in the community to get that feedback. Uh, that's, that's basically the guiding document that for the next number of years will help us understand where are we going to see what forms of housing, where will we see the employment zones, the businesses, where will we see, you know, uh, what kind of uh, measures will be brought to bear to support active transportation, our trail system, and so much more. Uh, so it's really, that's just one example, really, really important now that we're back into a regular schedule of our committee of the whole meetings and council meetings for people to, I hope, participate. You can do it in person, you can do it online, of course. We we, we try to make the council meetings and the business of the city as accessible as possible. So I would strongly urge people, you can, you, anything you want to provide by way of written communications can be sent by email to clerks at vaughn.ca. Very easy. The clerk's office is extraordinarily responsive here. And council, certainly me as mayor, we want to hear from our community and make sure they feel listened to and they feel engaged in the process because after all, it is our city, their city that we are building. And it's the voter who puts you in your position and council as well. 
Absolutely. So we are, you know, we, we, we need to continue to get that feedback to make sure that democratic accountability or that link is never lost between those of us who are serving in the, on this council and the people that we are here to serve. So they may not have a vote in this case, but they will have a voice. They, they certainly do. And I know this is something shared by every member of council, a very strong desire to make sure that our residents feel like they are part of the process and they're being respected and listened to. Here's something I'm very excited about, Culture Days. And it makes me think of the Springsteen song, Glory Days, but that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> it's Ontario Culture Days Festival hosted by the city of Vaughan. That's pretty exciting. It is really exciting, and we're very proud to be able to do this in the city. It officially starts on Friday, September 22nd, runs right through to October the 15th. We're going to be kicking things off with a big celebration and a flag-raising ceremony on Saturday, September 23rd uh, at 9.30. Uh, that This whole program will run from 9.30 till noon in the courtyard at Vaughan City Hall. That's the courtyard where the fountain we just talked about a moment ago uh, is situated. And so uh, the ceremony, the flag-raising itself, will begin at 10.30, Residents will be able to enjoy free and interactive entertainment, arts and craft stations, dance performances. But don't worry, Anne, I'm not going to be one of the people dancing <laughs> oh, that day. Come so on. Nobody, oh, come no, on. Nobody has to be too scared about that prospect. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, and uh, we've also, uh, we've also uh, set aside, and this is really important as well for us as a community, and not just in Vaughan, but across our country, we've set aside Saturday, September 30th to create space uh, exclusively for events organized to commemorate the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which we want to make sure that we do recognize that particular series of events. We'll be sharing First Nations, Métis, and Inuit experiences and perspectives, celebrating the cultural expressions of Indigenous people and communities. It's such an important thing as we continue on the collective responsibility and the journey that we have relating to reconciliation. Looking ahead to October, but starting to plan for it now, as you always do, it will be Small Business Week coming up October 15th through until October 21st. And the City of Vaughan's Business and Entrepreneurship Centre will be a big part of this. So what are you celebrating? Well, you know, not not many people in our community know. Like we, we, let, me, let me rephrase that. We know that we have a lot of small businesses and small business entrepreneurs in our city. But sometimes the stats kind of surprise even me. 87%, 87% of the businesses in the city of Vaughan are small businesses, meaning that they have fewer than 20 employees. So when, when politicians and others say small businesses really are the backbone of our economy, the stats back that up. They, they literally are. So uh, this is, our city, we have what's known as the Vaughan Business and Entrepreneurship Center. We call it VBEC for short. Uh, throughout the year, they offer business owners and entrepreneurs all kinds of really incredible resources, advisory consultations, workshops, networking opportunities. And I've heard like a ton of positive feedback from people who already own and run their small businesses, other people who are thinking about jumping in, taking that calculated risk to help support our economy and employ more people. And they love the work that our VBEC team does. Uh, so you're right. We are going to be kicking off a week supporting small business, celebrating small business, paying tribute to the small business entrepreneur, entrepreneurs who really light you know, the fire of Vaughn's economic engine. So VBEC is going to be hosting a whole bunch of in-person and virtual events throughout Small Business Week. And anybody out there who's listening who is interested as a small business owner or someone thinking about becoming a small business owner can visit vaughnbusiness.ca 
slash SBW to learn more. And I, I strongly urge people to think about it because we are here to help support the dreams and aspirations that our entrepreneurs have. And there are two sides to this coin, Mayor Del Duca. The other side of the coin is the consumer, the shopper, the the person who will visit the businesses in Vaughan, the Vaughan residents and people from beyond Vaughan. That's so important that we support local businesses. Absolutely. I mean, you think about it, it's our small business entrepreneurs that tend to support our community as well. You 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 look at our 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 amateur soccer leagues and baseball leagues and hockey leagues, and you'll see a lot of the sponsors on those jerseys that our kids or grandkids are playing. Those are all small business owners, many of them. Uh, lots of charitable organizations that rely on the kind of support that they get from our small businesses. Lots of people who are employed as I mentioned just a moment ago, by those small businesses. And we have great areas right across our city, whether it's, you know, right right along Islington and Kleinberg or Market Lane and Woodbridge or certainly parts of Thornhill and beyond, all Maple, all over the area, you see incredible numbers and incredible innovation and creativity within our small business community. So we're here to help. And that's what Small Business Week, which we're going to celebrate here in Vaughan, will help to do. Got to say thank you for all of this, but I also want to ask you to think about finding those dancing shoes and putting them on in time for <laughs> Ontario Culture Days Festival hosted by the city of Vaughan. Not going ha- <laughs> to happen. I, I, want, I want to encourage support for the mayor, not discourage it. So no dancing in public from Mayor Del Duca. Never say never, Mayor Del Duca. <laughs> thank you so much. We'll, we'll talk next month. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. You take care. You Appreciate too. it. Bye. After the break, celebrating the nation's music station. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Coming soon, a new documentary about the Canadian video music channel that broke all the rules in a good way. Shaliza Back is now with Much Music Original, Erica M. All right. It's no secret that I'm a millennial and a lot of Canadian millennials grew up watching music videos on TV, specifically on Much Music. And as someone in the media industry right now, I dreamt of being a much music vj that was like the goal and i feel like a lot of people also felt the same and joining me now is erica m who actually did live out that dream how are you erica i'm great thanks a lot thank you so much for joining me and a lot of people would look at you as one of the og much music vjs i guess that's because i am (laughs) (laughs) and what was it like starting up something like that because It definitely was unheard of in its time, and it progressed into something that I don't think anybody was expecting. You're right. I had an amazing opportunity to be in the cultural center of Canada in the 80s and 90s. Much Music was an incredible place to grow up. It was an incredible place to learn about the media, to get really connected to the musicians who made the music. It was uh, an amazing place to learn to be an entrepreneur. And essentially, I really learned all my skills as an entrepreneur in my time at Much Music, believe it or not. It's actually really interesting that you say that because it feels like they're two completely different realms. But I guess a lot of skills can carry over. When each of us in the early days were chosen on Much Music is because 
they believed that we could build our own personal brands because we were the real deal. And in doing so, you kind of learn how to build your brand, which is such an important skill these days. It also taught me how to build community, which is part of the success of my business with MNCO and YMC.ca. It showed me the importance of entrepreneurship, which is giving your staff the freedom to be creative internally without having to be micromanaged. Uh, the team at Much Music really gave everybody the opportunity to be creative. When I run my own companies, I do the same thing. It's an important part. And I'm sure you feel like that, Shaliza, when you're working, you don't need someone micromanaging you. They know that you're good at your job. And also the idea of unscripted cuts through. And we all know now that people in the me media who have this sort of script that they stick to become uninteresting to us. It's the people who are authentic, who are vulnerable, who are true to who they are, who have values, are the ones that are excelling in the social world today. And again, we learned that at Much Music. And it's so interesting that you say that because I feel like authenticity and personality are the things that people connect with the most. And to tell you the truth, that's what I remember you and a lot of your colleagues for, not necessarily the job, not necessarily who you got to interview, but for your on-air personality. And I think that was the genius of Moses Neimer, who hired all of us. He believed that this was a living movie where he wanted people to just be themselves. He just hired the right people. He believed in hiring personalities, people with skills and expertise rather than broadcasters. He believed that anyone can learn to be a broadcaster, but not a lot of people really have the real skills or passion. So when you bring a bunch of people together who are really passionate about music and culture, that's where the magic happens. Definitely. And I love the term that you used, living movie, because I feel like that translates into what's happening now. This documentary called 299 Queen Street West, the iconic building, where it all happened. And it's premiering in Toronto on September the 22nd. It's going to be very exciting. There's going to be a ton of people who were part of the Much Music team over the years, both VJs and what we call the crew, which are the people who were usually behind the scenes, but often on camera with us having a lot of fun. At Much Music, it was a very sort of democratic communal team where the people who were on camera were actually not that much more important than the people who were behind the scenes making it happen. So I'm really excited to see my other colleagues both on camera and behind the scenes as well. It's going to be a real homecoming for a lot of us. Yeah. And that was my next question. Like, how does it feel for you to connect with all those people again after all these years? A lot of us have been in touch over the years. I mean, first of all, I have a podcast called Reinvention of the VJ. I've been doing that over the last few years. Essentially, I interview, uh, I think I've, I'm up to about 20 of the on-air team uh, over the years at much. Some people I knew and some people who came after me to understand their trajectory through the industry, both how they started and then what happened after they left Much Music, how they managed to reinvent. So I've been in touch with a lot of the people and also a lot of the people who are in quotation marks, part of the crew, people behind the scenes also have stayed friends. We all have kind of stayed friends because listen, we went through the fire and we experienced something that most people can never imagine. 
Yeah. And I, I love that you've all kept in touch. And you know what? At the end of the day, this is a small industry and it's definitely possible for people's paths to cross again. Absolutely. And I really want to shout out to Sean Menard, who is the visionary behind all of this. He is a, you know, when I say young guy, he's in his mid thirties. He grew up right on the tail end of much music. And he realized that there are so many stories that are going to be lost if someone doesn't step up and tell the much music story. So he literally mortgaged his house in order to pay to make this documentary, which is really a love song to the nation's music station and the people who uh, were the voices behind and on camera. Wow, that's insane. I really do think the payoff is going to be worth it because like I said, as somebody who grew up watching much music, I think this is something that we've been waiting to see. And I want to ask you, uh, comparing experiences with people who came after you, let's say, for example, someone like maybe Matt Babel or Leah Miller, do you feel like your experiences differed? Uh, actually, I think that my they didn't get to experience what I experienced. I think that as the, as the years changed it became less chaotic uh and the magic was in the chaos i think can you tell me a little bit about that i mean i can remember you know the views outside 299 queen street west speakers corner uh much on demand all of those things the live audience and the people showing up is really what gave it that sparkle and so you feel like that changed over the years when i worked there from 1985 to 1994 it was a hotbed of creativity There was uh, no money, lots of creativity, lots of collaboration, lots of firsts, lots of mistakes, and it really captured the imagination of Canadians. And the people who followed had the path and the trail was already blazed for them. And they also had the unfortunate experience of, in many cases, being part of a company that was Bell Media. Mm-hmm. And when Bell Media bought Much Music, the entire uh, value system changed. And it wasn't the Much Music that most people were used to. And it was ultimately the reason why Much Music failed. That's a that's a really good point. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. So like I said, the documentary 299 Queen Street West premieres in Toronto on September 22nd. If there is like one takeaway that you want people to get from this documentary, what would you say that is? Dare to be a dreamer and you can make the impossible possible. I love that. That's simple and perfect. Erica M. OG, Much Music VJ. If our listeners want to connect with you and get some more information, where can we find you? You can visit ericam.com or I'm on LinkedIn. Instagram, Twitter, every single place, (laughs) social media, gotta love it. Indeed you do. Erica, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Next, Jim Lang is on the court with the benefits of youth sports. Well, as any Canadian will tell you, basketball is probably the fastest growing sport in the country. Definitely one of the fastest growing sports in York region. And one of the organizations doing something about it to make it better for kids is the York South Silver Knights basketball program. Thrilled to be speaking to their director of elite and rep teams, Joe Spinetto. Joe, how are you? I'm well, thank you. It's a it's a great organization. Uh, you're trying to bring what you call the joy of basketball to these young boys and girls. 
What is it about basketball right now in York Region that has so many young boys and girls excited to be part of it and play it? Well, obviously, Canada beat the U.S. So everybody wants to be on board. And, and we have a program that we want to show all the kids that they can do whatever they want if they wish to do it. And that's fantastic. And the other thing that you guys do, I like, it's it's not just the basketball. It's teamwork, self-discipline, responsibility, accomplishment. And, and while they're playing a sport, they love basketball. They're learning skills that they're going to take with them for years to come. We try to teach at York South life lessons. Uh, not all games are winners and not all games are losers. We try to teach that you learn from losing games become better and in life you always make mistakes but you will learn from your mistakes i know you're focused on kids in richmond hill and markham and you're in the area of the york region the unionville club to help play basketball how are the numbers how how many young boys and girls are signing up to play basketball have their numbers gone up in the last few years you're finding joe uh in our position no, unfortunately, we've been affected by the pandemic. Uh, before the pandemic, we were great numbers. We had girls and we had boys. After the pandemic, we've been affected uh, greatly. Uh, one of the things that I have noticed is that the girls have dropped off. And in talking some to some of our other club members, uh, this is uh, Ontario-wide. The girls don't want to play basketball anymore. What we found is that a lot of the girls want to play volleyball or dance or something else. Mm. And uh, we don't see that, that drive that was there before the pandemic. For anyone who is interested, boys or girls or families who want to get into basketball, you can get more details at silverknightsbasketball.com. For the York South Silver Knights basketball program, it is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to providing a superior level of skill development and competitive opportunity in rep competitive ball. And that's the one thing is, yes, you have house league, you have the mini nights, you have the three and three for girls, but some of these elite and rep teams, Joel, some of the talent coming out of there, it's amazing how good these kids are. They are, and they're committed to the game itself. And that really comes from the parents who are who are encouraging their kids to strive as, as strong as they can be. What is it about basketball that drew you that made you such a passionate basketball fan and someone who de dedicated uh, his life to it? Jim, that is a loaded question. <laughs> it is really loaded. I'm going to tell you, I've been an official for over 55 years. Wow. I've seen basketball in Ontario grow. Um, I was not a basketball player. I was a football player. But I needed money to get through college, and I went to uh, a local uh, Tuffy Knight, my coach, and I said to him, I need money. I need money. And he said to me, come to me, and I'll teach you how. And he taught me, and I went into basketball officiating, and I became in love with basketball. My family, we lived in York Region for 20 years, Joe, and now I walk around, I drive around, 
I see nine out of ten driveways have a basketball net in it. Absolutely. It, it is a growing sport, but we need to keep it growing. And one of the issues that I have, and, and I complain with all my parents, uh, is social media. we got to get rid of it. We've got to get the kids to play on a court, whether it's outside, inside, anywhere. Or just get together and have, have a football game on, uh, on a field. Social media is killing us. And, Jim, uh, uh, we just had our uh, tryouts uh, first weekend uh, this past weekend. And I know something that happened in our uh, area. There were eight parents that were waiting for their kids to come out of practice. Of the eight, six were on the phone. Does that tell you something? Well, it certainly tells us we're addicted to those devices and the phones, Joel. That's for sure, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I need to get those kids off the phone, off the iPod, off the TV, and on a court, a field, anywhere to run their yeah, because, I mean, it's been scientifically proven. The youth, when they're active, they're exercising, playing sports, they develop better. Absolutely. Their mind is not thinking about school or my mom yelled at me. They're thinking about, I got to get to the end line or I have to catch that ball or I have to return it, whatever it is that their sports are in. Get more details, silverknightsbasketball.com. Joe Spinetto is the director of elite and rep teams of this York South Silver Knights basketball with Richmond Hill, Markham, and Unionville. Get your kids, if you have a young boy, young girl, get them active, get them part of basketball. It's a great sport to learn, and even after they're out of school, they can play it for years and decades to come. So, Joel, thank you so much for talking to us. We really appreciate it and appreciate your work uh, teaching these kids, A, basketball, but teaching them these life skills that they really need. I really appreciate your time, and I hope that people will keep their kids active. Indeed. Thanks, Joel. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you very much for listening.